leave them with the impression that we didn't know any better. Well, in spite of, of what we think, in spite of what we try to maintain, ignorance cannot be equated with innocence. In fact, ignorance is a culpable fault. Sometimes in Scripture, lack of understanding is a punishable offense. You know, if you look around in, in, in legal matters, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Ask your IRS agent. Ask the building inspector. Or in, in natural law, ignorance doesn't do you any good. Gravity will pull you down just as fast whether you saw that cliff coming or not. And in spiritual things, ignorance really doesn't protect. It doesn't do you any good. This is a reality we must face. Ignorance is not innocence. Again, in Scripture, there are many times when lack of understanding, when ignorance is sin. That should shake us a little bit. And in order to understand what we're talking about, let's look at our passage in Mark 8. Let's start with the first nine verses. These describe the feeding of the 4,000. Now, this uh, incident is something I want to look at in a little bit of detail, but realize that this is really background to the main point. Let me just uh, read the first nine verses. In those days again, when there was a great multitude and they had nothing to eat, he called the disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitudes because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their home, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come a distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough to satisfy these men with bread here in a desolate place? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the multitude to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the multitude. And they had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. And about 4,000 were there. And he sent them away. This is the uh, second incident of Jesus feeding a large group of people. This one took place in Gentile country. In fact, this is the region of the Gerizines. I don't know if you remember the guy with all the demons, with the legion of demons, was from this area. And remember what happened when Jesus cast the demons out of this guy and he was sitting there calm? Remember the people's response? They were terrified of Jesus. They, were, they, they, they begged him to leave because they saw how incredible his power was. But they didn't know his goodness. And so they, they considered him too dangerous to have around. So Jesus decides to, to respect their wishes. As he starts to leave, this, this uh, demon-possessed guy comes up and begs to go with him. And Jesus says, no, you go home and you tell your family, you tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. And tell them of his great mercy. That's the first time Jesus told somebody to go and talk about it. Usually he says, just keep it quiet. Just go home. Don't tell anybody. But this time, he told the guy, tell everybody. Because this guy's life had been radically changed. This was the testimony of a changed life. And that's the testimony that Jesus wants. Well, apparently this guy did his job. Because now that Jesus is back in the area, nobody's afraid of him anymore. They flock to him. They're no longer afraid of his, his power because they've heard of his mercy as well. Anyway, Jesus is here. There's a huge crowd there. And they've been with Jesus for three days. And they're all hungry. So Jesus has compassion on them. Jesus always 
has compassion on them. William Barclay comments, The most amazing thing about him is his sheer considerateness. Now, considerateness is a virtue which never forgets the details of life. Jesus looked at the crowd. They had been with him for three days, and he remembered that they had a long walk home. He whose task it was to bring the splendor and majesty of the truth and love of God to men might have had a mind above thinking of what was going to happen to his congregation on their walk home. But Jesus was not like that. You know, sometimes we can be so heavenly-minded we are no earthly good. Now, I usually don't like that statement because I think it misunderstands being heavenly-minded. But, but the idea behind it is that sometimes we can be so focused on people's spiritual needs that we ignore their physical needs. All the way through Mark, Jesus has made it clear that the spiritual really is the more fundamental, is the more important need. That's true. But as you look at him, the one who knows this better than anyone, the one who taught us this truth, he never allows his concern for people's spiritual condition to make him insensitive to their physical condition. And if we allow our proper priority of people's spiritual needs to insulate us from their physical needs, we're wrong. It's true, the spiritual is the more fundamental, but we've got to let God use us to meet physical and emotional needs as well. If we're going to become like Jesus, we've got to let Him express His considerateness through us, replacing our, our indifferent ignorance of people's needs with a genuine thoughtfulness. Anyway, like before, when Jesus fed the multitude, when Jesus has compassion, it means the disciples have to do something. Maybe we saw that back in chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000, that Jesus had compassion on these people because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and suddenly the disciples find themselves having to come up with the bread and the fish. And like before, in this instance, you see that the disciples don't like it. They don't like the implication that they need to get involved. And, and you can hear a little bit of their irritation in their response. But Jesus, like before, just asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Jesus takes the loaves and he goes through roughly the same procedure he went through in chapter 6. He, he blesses the loaves, he breaks them, he gives them to the disciples, they pass them all out, he takes the fish, he blesses them. And breaks them, gives them to the disciples, they pass it out. Then after everybody is stuffed, the disciples go back and they pick up all that's left over. And this time they have seven big baskets full. These are are big fish baskets. Back in in chapter 6, we talked about the little kafinos, the little lunch boxes that each of the Jews carried. Back there, that's what the twelve baskets were, these little lunch baskets full. This time they are big fish baskets, the kind of basket that Paul hid in when he escaped from Damascus. Well, even though there are different size baskets and different numbers of baskets, basically, this is the same miracle. You know, why do we have a second miracle like this recorded for us? Uh, you know, I don't mean to sound blasé, but he's already done this one. And, and he did it better last time. Last time he's fed 5,000 with five loaves. This time it was 4,000 with seven loaves. Why do we have it again? Isn't the message basically the same? You know, we see in both instances, the message is that when God cares, when Jesus has compassion, 
He turns to us to do something. And that when He asks us to do something, all He asks is the little bit that we have. And as we lay that at His feet, He takes it and multiplies it and meets needs through us, shows His power and love through us. And in the process, He meets our needs. He feeds us as well. And He does it liberally. He does it expansively. Well, see, those are good lessons, but we already learned them last time. Why the second incident? I think the reason for the second incident is really the point of this whole passage we're going to be looking at. The reason for the second incident is that the disciples didn't understand anything the first time. This is the second incident of almost identical situation, and the response of the disciples is almost the same as it was before. They're irritated. They're annoyed. They, you know, they don't say, okay, Jesus is going to feed the 4,000 just like he did the 5,000. He's going to use us. This is going to be great. I can't wait. You know, okay, Jesus, here's our seven loaves. What do you want us to do? Tell us what to do. Now, they say with irritation, where are we going to find enough bread for all of these people out here? Come on, Jesus, this is unreasonable. Now, it's like they didn't learn anything at all the first time. Now, there are a couple of things happening here that I think we can identify with if, with if we stop and think. First of all, these disciples didn't want to see these people's needs. Uh, for one thing, these guys that Jesus is now dealing with are Gentiles. And it wasn't until well after the resurrection that the disciples caught on that Jesus loves Gentiles. In fact, one of the purposes, I think, of, of, of this second incident as well is that Jesus is showing here that he not only is the shepherd of Israel, he's the compassionate shepherd of all who come to him. That he is the shepherd of the Gentiles as well. And he loves them as well. And that's not really a lesson the disciples were all that excited about understanding. They weren't all that excited about having their prejudice confronted. But I think more basically, these disciples didn't want to see these people's need because they didn't want the inconvenience of having to think about it, having to deal with it, having to address those needs. You know, sure, they had seen Jesus take care of the problem before. But it's much easier just to send people away. It's much easier to ignore people's needs than it is to turn to God in faith and let Him meet those needs through us. Again, they'd seen Jesus do it before. But even back there, it was scary because they weren't sure how it was going to all fall out. Even back there, it took faith. And sometimes faith is hard. And they didn't want to be stretched like that. They don't want to go through that discomfort. You know, faith does require some stretching. And the first step is to take a look honestly at people's needs. But what if I look at their needs and I, I feel the pain of identification and then I can't do anything about it? What if I step out in faith and, and reach out to them and then I'm just left with this emotional load? Now that's hard. And, and, and after seeing their need, faith requires that we depend on God, that we humbly come before Him in dependence. But I don't like to be dependent. That makes me feel terribly vulnerable. And so it's hard again. It's much more comfortable just to ignore it. It's much easier just to pretend that the need isn't there or that somebody else will take care of it. You know, I know this because that's the way my flesh always pulls me. If I 
step out in faith, if I reach out to somebody, then suddenly I'm on the hook. And I have to be good. I have to depend on God. I have to get up and do something. I can't just drop it all of a sudden, too. It may take me farther than I want to go. And my flesh would rather spend all that time and that energy on me. Now, how unlike our Lord, who demonstrated that the real, the true path to to a rich, rewarding, joy-filled life is to die to that flesh, to, to care about people, to reach out, to see God's faithfulness, to be bonded together of people of like spirit. You know, Jesus demonstrated all this not because he wanted to rob us of our, our rest, uh, make us tired and miserable. He demonstrated this because he wants our joy in him. He wants us to experience life as richly as he does. Again, we learn this when we step out and we minister. And we experience it. But once that ministry is over, once that experience is over... And our flesh comes roaring back, and we don't want to go through that again. And again, the disciples saw it once, but they didn't want to go through it again. You know, maybe you taught a Sunday school class, and God really used you to love those kids. But now as you think about it, you remember the fear on Saturday night, and and all the time that had to go into preparation, and, and your desperate dependence on God to know how to love the tough ones. And you just don't want to be stretched like that again. Maybe you shared uh, the gospel with, with a friend and you were afraid, but you went ahead and did it anyway. But now as you look back, you remember that fear. You remembered that awkwardness. And you don't want to be stretched like that again. Or maybe you gave sacrificially and it cut into your finances. And you had to trust God to get you through a difficult time. And you just don't want to go through that again. Well, see, if this is true, like the disciples, you're missing a couple of things. You're losing sight of some things. First of all, you're forgetting the profound, the deep satisfaction of God loving someone through you. That's what we were created for. And that is very good. Just the quiet, rich reward of seeing Him active in your life. And secondly, you're forgetting that Jesus is the Master. He is our Lord. Our motivation for caring about people, for reaching out, is His compassion, His love, not our own. Our lives are at His disposal, not our own. The other thing I think that works so hard against us, uh, just as it did the disciples in, in, in seeing that Jesus was going to handle this new situation... The thing that works so hard against us is we somehow view or assume that the extraordinary things that God has done for us or through us are really freak events, uh, almost coincidences that could never happen again. You know, the, sure, Jesus fed the 5,000, but it was too much to even imagine or, or, or almost too much to believe that he would go ahead and feed the 4,000. And I've got to confess that every week... About Thursday, I am absolutely and miserably convinced that I will have absolutely nothing to say by Sunday. And Sunday evening, I am grateful, I am amazed, I'm saying, thank you, God, at least I had something to say. 
But by the middle of the next week, I am absolutely convinced all over that when I'm up here, I'm going to draw a complete blank. You know, and if you've ever trusted God for something that, that, that frightens you or makes you uncomfortable, you know what I'm talking about. You know, maybe God got you through a difficult financial time and He provided for you in extraordinary ways. You got refunds that you didn't expect or a gift in the mail or maybe just the little that you had covered all of your needs like the seven loaves covered all 4,000 people. But the next time you hit financial difficulty, it just seems overwhelming again. Maybe God got you through some emotionally difficult time. Or maybe it's just His provision of little things, like a parking place when you were running late, or just the right words to comfort a friend. But when we get in the same situation, we panic all over again. We're so like these disciples. It's amazing. Well, let's uh, go on to the next incident, starting with verse 10. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Jesus and the disciples got on the boat, went over to the area of Dalmanutha, which is in Israel. By the way, that's a district that's also known as Magdala, as in Mary Magdalene. But anyway, when they get there, a delegation of Pharisees comes out, intercepts them, confronts them, immediately starts arguing with them. And they demand a sign. The proof of who he is. Now realize this, this demand for a sign does not come out of an honest seeking of truth. What it is, is they think they have got an ingenious trap set for him. They think they've got him in a catch-22 that no matter what he does, they can convict him of a capital offense and have him executed. Back in chapter 3, they had already decided that that's what they needed to do. Find a way to have Jesus executed. And now they think they have hatched the perfect plot. See, if Jesus gives them a sign, if, whether it works or not, they can convict him of a capital offense. If he gives a sign, offers a sign, and it doesn't work, then they can go to Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22, which says, if, if a man comes claiming to be a prophet, and what he says does not come true, he is a false prophet and should be put to death. Okay, but if the sign does work, Then they'll turn to Deuteronomy 13, the first five verses. There, they're told that if a dreamer or a prophet comes to them and offers a sign, and that sign or wonder comes true, but that prophet or dreamer is leading you to other gods, he is to be put to death. And they reason that since Jesus made himself out to be equal with God, that he was promoting other gods. So even if his sign came true, that would have been enough to convict him and have him put to death. Again, they thought they had him trapped. But Jesus, sighing deeply because his heart aches for these guys, says to him, I'm not going to give you any sign. And he turns around, he walks back to the boat, and they take off. Verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. 
And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus is still troubled in his spirit as they're in the boat about the attitude of the Pharisees. And so he he turns to the disciples. He wants to warn them. He says, Be careful. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod in your own life. Now, in those days, the way they, they made bread was very similar to the way we make sourdough bread. They'd take a lump of dough, and then they'd take some old dough, some sourdough, some dough that had slightly fermented, just a little piece, and they'd mix it in to, to, the, to the fresh lump. And that sourdough would permeate and, and cause the entire batch to ferment slightly, and it would rise. That little piece, that little pinch of sourdough was called leaven. It, a little touch of it, a little bit of it, affected the whole batch. All the way through Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New, leaven is a symbol for sin, because a little bit affects everything. A little bit of sin affects your entire life. It affects your attitudes and your relationships. It affects your self-image. It affects your relationship with God. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is the sin of disbelief in the face of evidence. You see, Jesus has been piling up evidence, piling up signs of who he is for two and a half years. And here come these Pharisees, and they say, prove who you are. Tell us who you are. Show us a sign from heaven. That's why Jesus is so exasperated. When I was a kid, I used to watch the uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle show every day after school, which might account for my twisted sense of humor, actually for the, uh, the warped mentality of my entire generation. You know, watching Mr. Peabody and Fractured Fairy Tales has to leave its mark. But I remember one episode of Fractured Fairy Tales. It was Rumpelstiltskin. In Fractured Fairy Tales, they take a fairy tale and they twist it slightly to make it more humorous. So in Rumpelstiltskin... Rumpelstiltskin spins the straw into gold for the princess, and the, the price is her firstborn child. When the child's born, he comes to claim the child, and she begs him for another chance, and he gives it to her. That if he, she can guess his name, she can keep the child. Well, in the fractured fairy tale version, Rumpelstiltskin takes the kid home, but he is such an unmanageable brat that he doesn't want the baby anymore. He doesn't want the kid. So he's trying to give the princess all of these clues to what his name is. And this dense princess can't figure it out. So finally, he's putting up billboards with his name, Rumpelstiltskin. He's wearing a neon sign around his neck that flashes, Rumpelstiltskin. And still, this princess can't figure it out. You know, I think Jesus must have felt like that. He's been putting up billboards saying who he is, and still nobody is putting it together. They can't figure it out. You know, all the evidence that these Pharisees needed was right there in front of them. They they had the evidence of Jesus' effect on people's lives. The the deaf heard, the blind saw, demons were cast out, people were fed. Lives were changed from from greed or, or destructiveness to love. 
They had the, they had the evidence of Jesus' authority and his character. You know, he, he demonstrated the love, the compassion, the, the, the grace of God. And his teaching had an amazing authority. People were astounded when they heard him teach because his words were true. They had the ring of truth about them. And the Pharisees had the evidence of Scripture. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus was the seed of David. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. He traveled to Egypt. You know, every prophecy of the Old Testament is obviously and clearly met in Him. All of the evidence was there. But they refused to look at it. They had already made up their minds and they didn't want to be bothered with the facts. And they had convinced themselves that it just wasn't reasonable, that it just wasn't quite enough evidence, that it just didn't fit together because they refused to let it fit together. The evidence was there. You know, that same evidence is in front of you. You know, look at the way Jesus affects lives, the way he changes people. Look at his character, his amazing love and forgiveness and patience. Look at the scriptures. He is their fulfillment. Now, the evidence is all there. But you say, no, I want proof. I want a sign. You've got all the proof you need. You've got all the evidence you need. If you would just look at it, don't play that game. Don't walk away from here thinking this is just all religious talk. Don't play that game. It's a deadly game. Deal with the facts. The, the leaven of Herod is the same as the leaven of the Pharisees. He, Herod had John the Baptist prisoner. And every day he would go down and listen to what John the Baptist said. And day after day he heard the truth. And he never outright rejected it. He never concluded that it wasn't true. He just didn't do anything about it. He didn't let it penetrate him. He didn't respond. You know, and maybe you're the same. Maybe you know the truth is true. You don't have any questions of who Jesus is. You know that He is the Lord, that He is God come in the flesh, that He came to give you life, that He died to free you from your sins. You know all that. You know who He is. But you're not doing anything about it. You're not letting that knowledge, that truth penetrate you. You're not responding. You're not giving Him your life in response to who He is. Well, if that's the case, then the, the leaven of Herod has permeated your life. And it's affecting every area of your life. You're still full of selfishness and self-pity and fears that are keeping you isolated and lonely. See, purge that leaven. Be rid of it. Respond to the truth that you know. See, pretending not to know, playing ignorance doesn't save you. It doesn't free you. It doesn't do you any good. Respond. Give yourselves entirely and unreservedly to the Lord. Be free. Well, one of the things that we also see as we look at these disciples is that their response was very similar to the Pharisees and Herod. You see, they had all this evidence in front of them. But even as Jesus is teaching them, they keep the impact suspended. 
It still doesn't soak through. And Jesus sees this tendency in them. And so he warns them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod in your life. And how do they respond? They start arguing about who forgot bread. And Jesus goes, "Ah, why are you arguing about who forgot bread? And Jesus decides, okay, I'll take them through this step by step. And he says, okay, when I've fed the 5,000, how many loaves, how many baskets were left over? Like little schoolboys, they say, 12. Okay, when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets were left over? Seven. Now, do you understand? And I see the disciples kind of staring down at their sandals, their eyes, their brows furrowed, their eyes darting around, thinking, understand what? You know, their hearts were hardened, Jesus said. Their ears were plugged. Well, what's the point? What was Jesus' point? You know, I, I kind of ask the same question. Understand what? Well, some people argue that the, the key is the numbers. Because 12 and 7 are very important symbolic numbers in Scripture. And I think there's something to that. See, 12 is the number of Israel. And at feeding of the 5,000 Jews, Jesus was demonstrating that he was the shepherd of Israel, the Lord of the Old Testament. And seven is the number of completion. And when he fed these 4,000 Gentiles and Jews mixed, he was showing that this was the complete plan, to draw all men to himself. Like I said, I think there's a lot to that, but I think the real significance is much more simple. See, these disciples were confronted with a need. And Jesus met that need easily and abundantly. In one case, there were, there were 12 little baskets left over. In the other case, there were seven huge baskets left over. See, Jesus can and will meet our needs and use us for His glory. And He won't do it stingily. He will do it expansively, generously. He's already demonstrated his willingness and his ability to do that. But see, these disciples just fail to make the connection between isolated events and what Jesus will do consistently, what he promises to do. We do the exact same thing. You know, we walk through our daily lives constantly distressed by the things that happen. And it never occurs to us even. It never just enters our mind to take him to God and to trust him and that he might be willing to be involved. It didn't enter these disciples' mind that Jesus could take care of the problem that nobody brought bread in the boat. They just don't even think of it. You know, God can, does, and will take care of my needs no matter how trivial they are. That's true. And we all could say that is true. But we live lives of constant distress, constantly overwhelmed, constantly thrown off balance and confused. We don't see the fact that God wants to be involved in every detail of our lives. We don't see the fact that He loves us. You know, these problems will always be there. There will always be problems, but they don't have to overwhelm us. You know, the problem really isn't one of intelligence. It's a problem of willingness. Anybody can see the facts, but are we willing to deal with them? 
and to really think them through and to see where they lead us and to go where they lead us. For the Pharisees and for Herod, it was the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and needed to be submitted to, to be trusted with their lives. They needed to repent of their pride and let Him teach them from scratch of God's grace and what life was all about. And giving up that pride, giving up their position, giving up their control of their lives was too hard for them. For the disciples, it was seeing Jesus' concern for every detail of their life, surrendering the the control of their life and the direction of their life over to Him. See, that makes them dependent. That makes them vulnerable. And that's a scary place to be. That's a hard place to be. And which of us isn't like the disciples? We're not intentionally ignorant. But we still see that we don't think it through. We don't respond in faith when we encounter life's problems. Our ears are plugged. Our eyes are closed. Our hearts are hard. What do we do about it? How can we deal with that? Well, I think the answer is in the last and final story in our section. We don't have time to go into details like we usually do. But let me read the story and give you what I think is the primary message of it. Starting in verse four, uh, no, 21, 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eye and laying his hand upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I'm seeing them like trees walking about. Then again he laid his hands Upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the only miracle that we have recorded that took two steps. Now, some people suggest that it took two steps because Jesus' power was waning, he was getting tired at the end of his ministry. Or that maybe this was a, a particularly difficult form of blindness. But I think these explanations are frivolous because Jesus' power was not limited. It was the power of the Father. And there was no limit to that power. There was nothing that could resist it or stand up against it. Now, Jesus took two steps to heal this guy intentionally to communicate a message, a truth to us. And Mark put it here in this passage because it goes with what, 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 what we've been learning, what we've been seeing. You see, this blind man was touched by the Lord and his eyes were open. He could see, but he couldn't see clearly. Things were still blurry. Things were still out of focus. He saw people, but he didn't see the details. He didn't see them distinctly. So the Lord had to touch him again. And there we're told that his eyes that he looked intently, that he could see clearly, and his vision was sharp, and he saw all of the detail. It took a second touch from our Lord. You see, if we have come to Jesus Christ in faith, we've been touched by Him. Our eyes are open. We can see. But whether through willful disobedience or, or just indifferent ignorance, our vision has become blurred. It's become fuzzy and hazy. We can still see. We still see, but we see men 
as trees walking. We don't see the details. We see people, but we don't see their needs. We don't see their heart. We don't see their hunger. And we, and we look at ourselves in the same blurred fashion. We don't see our deep hunger to be entirely possessed by our Lord, to be sold out to His kingdom. We don't see the potential for the wonderful things He can do through us if we lay ourselves in His hands. And worst of all, we don't see our Lord clearly. We don't see His love. We don't see His concern and care for every detail of our lives. We don't see His desire to give us His life, His joy, a desire that was strong enough for Him to die for. As a result, we walk around seeing but not seeing clearly, seeing blurred, disquieting, confusing shapes and movement. What we need is another touch from our Lord. You see, we can't open our eyes. We can't unplug our ears. We can't soften our hearts. Only He can do that. All we can do is come to Him humbly, honestly, confessing that's where we are, confessing our need and letting Him touch us. He is the one that has the ability to unstop our ears, to soften our hearts, and to give us clear, penetrating vision. All we can do is honestly want it and ask Him for it. Let me just finish by reading a couple verses from Proverbs. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and He preserves the way of His godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of destruction. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, just confess that so often my heart is hard, that I encounter situations in life, I see needs, and I just turn away because I don't want to see them, because I'm afraid, because I don't really trust that you're adequate, and that, you're, that you care, that you're involved. I run into problems in my own life, and I never even think to bring it to you. I just get focused on being upset and feeling sorry for myself. Lord, all of these things are just evidence that my heart is hard. My eyes are closed. My ears are are plugged. We just need you to open our eyes. We need you to soften our hearts, to give us a real desire, a hunger to see, a willingness to deal with what you show us, to take us where you want us. Lord, we are helpless apart from your spirit, apart from your touch. And so we look to you in your name. Amen. Can you lead us on or just